is episode 156 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Engineering the Stem Cell Niche with Dr. Peter Zanstra. Hey everyone, this is Daylon James here with Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Want to stay even more up to date with the latest stem cell podcast news? Follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast and be the first to know about upcoming guests and contests. Today, we have Peter Zanstra from the University of British Columbia on the podcast to talk about his efforts to generate functional hematopoietic cells by recapitulating niche specific influences. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with mTeaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and iPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. mTeaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. You're telling me I can get my weekends back? Oh, man. Can't wait. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash mteaser plus. So we'll jump right into it. The first paper I'm going to talk about today is a paper that's coming out of the Gladstone Institutes. This is coming from the lab of Todd McDevitt, and it's published in Cell Systems. So the paper is about basically using machine learning in combination with human iPSCs to better predict how cells are going to behave in a two-dimensional culture. So we've kind of set this up, right? We kind of have an idea of how to predict cell movement, cell motility, and we can kind of use some of these principles to guide, say, 3D printing, right? We're able to use 3D printing to put cells kind of where we want them to go. But it's not always successful, right? And we're not always able to predict things with super high precision. That's kind of the ultimate goal. It's like, what if we could one day predict development totally in silico, right? And so these folks were actually able to, to do that at a very rudimentary level in a two-dimensional system. It's a pretty simple approach. They basically utilized two different IPS lines. One IPS line had a built-in CRISPR knockdown for rock which is a protein that's pretty important for cell adhesion and cell motility. And the other IPS line had a CRISPR built-in knockdown for CDH1, which is also another important protein for IPS cell stability, right? And so what they wanted to do is basically to introduce these two cell lines in a co-culture and then kind of turn a toggle switch on and off in the culture to if you turn off rock or you turn off CDH1, you want to see what's the effect on the overall culture. Is one cell type going to dominate over the other? That's what they wanted to, to show. So to feed in and to kind of provide a data set into their machine learning algorithm, they did a bunch of differentiations, turned on rock and turned off CDH1 at different time points and at different drug doses that are able to induce this knockdown. And they did this a whole bunch. And this is their data set that they fed into their machine learning algorithm. I don't know that much about machine learning, to be honest with you, but I do know that it's really dependent on the data set that you provide. And so they wanted to provide a most the most comprehensive data set that they could for their rock or CDH1 knockdown. And once they had that data set, they're able to basically tell the algorithm, all right, can you use this data set to actually tell us how these cells are going to move around when they're co-cultured uh, together? And can we basically, can the algorithm, when it's turned off, when it's predicting when rock or CDH1 is turned off, will it be able to show like which cell type is going to dominate in this culture? And in two circumstances, the algorithm was actually able to do a pretty good job. So when they're able to either switch on or off the CDH1 or rock, they're able to show under a certain circumstance, the co-culture can 
develop a bullseye pattern. So basically one of these cell types is grown in the middle of another. And the other example that was able to predict cell behavior was kind of a speckle pattern. So it's a really early stage method of using machine learning and artificial intelligence to predict how cells are going to behave in a culture dish, right? Of course, this is like, this is entirely artificial. This is a two dimensional cell culture. We're not talking about modeling development, right? But I think, you know, they, they even touched on it here. The next thing is for them to take this into 3D. And if we had to go one step beyond that, if you think about it, I think the ultimate goal would be to use machine learning or AI to actually predict development. Like say, say you have a mouse model and you want to know how a certain genetic perturbation or a drug perturbation is going to affect the development of a mouse completely based on an in, in silico data set. I think down the road, that's, that's going to happen. And like I was talking about, it all depends on the initial data set that you provide for this machine, machine learning approach. So I, for one, welcome our new machine learning overlords. What do you think, Daylon? <laughs> uh, I am a fan of you guys, overlords, so don't take this the wrong way. But it's a systems, cell systems paper. Yes, and I think you touched on it, and the authors, I think, kind of, uh, they cop to it straight off, that this is a rudimentary uh, kind of, this is a first step, right? These are first steps. And when I was looking at the videos, because I got all primed, you know, seeing the amazing stuff we see with the organoids and seeing just the amazing stuff when you look at, when you just unleash the intrinsic potential of these cells in a dish and they form all these structures uh, that are so amazing and well patterned. When I looked at the videos, I was like expecting a bit more. I'll be honest. I was expecting like a happy face or something more than, as you just <laughs> alluded to, like a bullseye, which was, I think, not so much a bullseye as just a circle in a field. And the speckled one. So I'm not, I'm not, I get it because this is systems and a systems person looks at this and is probably like, well, you don't understand how, how difficult it is to recapitulate the elegance of biology. And that would be my point is that, yes, we may be able to do all this stuff in silico and just leave the cells behind and do all our experiments, you know, in a nanosecond. But, um, for now, I think the, the, the best, shortest path, I'm sure the authors will concede and agree, is just to look at the natural system because it's been tuned over eons, right? It's the best way for that particular system almost by definition. So that's my take. But overlords, I mean, I love the work. I think it's coming, man. Hey, you know, this is, like you said, it's all incremental. You know, we got to build on this. There are some in silico data sets that actually have been pretty useful. Like I can think of some IPS cardiomyocyte data sets where you're able to like kind of predict drug toxicity completely in silico uh, based on an entire data set been, that's been fed in through IPS cardiomyocyte, like contractility, electrophysiology assays. So, so it's getting there, you know, like, you know, this is an incremental thing. We're going to, we're going to take it one step at a time, but kind of excited to see where this goes. Yeah, I think you're right there. And I think the, the great point is that, you know, you're not trying to do everything. You're not trying to get rid of biology altogether, but there's some systems where it really makes sense. Maybe systems that exist a little bit outside of physiological biology. And that brings me to my story. You know, we talk about physiology and how we're all trying to approach this natural state because, you know, uh, the blind watchmaker happens to be pretty good at what she does. Uh, but the bottom line is, is in our experimental systems, we do our best to approach that. And oftentimes we garner a lot or generate a lot of results uh, from these systems that maybe need to be contextualized within the system. I'm going to talk a little bit about hypoxia and how that relates to hematopoietic development uh, and the hematopoietic differentiation as a nod to our guest. Okay, Arun, it's not just because I love hematopoiesis. I'm doing this for Peter. Back to the story, we're talking about adult hematopoiesis in this case. Uh, you know, it happens in the bone marrow, and people may not recognize it, but the, the bone marrow is characterized by a kind of semi-hypoxic or low-oxygen environment relative to other vascular beds or other compartments within the body. 
Hypoxia, of course, low oxygen, it stabilizes mechanistically hypoxia-inducible factors, one and two, alpha, HIF one and two, proteins, and those are the master regulators of the hypoxia transcriptional response, right? So when you look in the blood system, it's been shown in human that hypoxia can promote the formation of myeloerythroid col colonies. So a whole branch of hematopoietic derivatives are enhanced. Um, and it can also enhance maintenance, expansion, and the proliferation of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. Uh, and these cells have been tested in vitro and in vivo also in these immunodeficient mouse models. But bottom line, apart from these kind of experimental studies, the understanding of hypoxia-inducible factor, uh, the understanding of that, the, the role of this factor in hematopoiesis, it's mostly been addressed in the mouse and it's mostly focused on hematopoietic stem progenitor function, all right? And that's leaving aside all the other derivatives, right? And immune cells uh, are myriad and they're also subjected to, subjected to very different levels of oxygen depending on what their home tissue is, right? So like, for example, while B cells are exposed to low O2 in the spleen and the lymph nodes, natural killer cells, uh, they preferentially locate in very hypoxic areas, the most hypoxic area. And the thymus, for example, is much more hypoxic than the spleen and the lymph nodes. So you get this kind of regional localization in the cells that preferentially arise in these milieus. Presumably, hypoxia may have an instructive function. So that suggests that the varying degrees of oxygenation within the lymphoid compartment particularly, um, as well as other hematopoietic cell types, that there's some physiology there. They may be playing a role. All right. So here's the thing is that when you do all these studies looking at human lymphoid development and differentiation, because we can't study them in a human, what do we do? We study them in vitro in these assays. And what's the oxygen level in all those assays? 21%. We're not even talking normoxia, much less hypoxia. We're talking about super physiological oxygen levels. All right. So in this study, uh, Rima Haddad, who's at the University of Paris in France, of course, uh, evaluated how important low oxygen levels are in maintaining and engaging phenotypically distinct hematopoietic progenitor cells, specifically within the lymphoid lineage. That's what they were focused on. And they showed that the low O2 differentially affects the hematopoietic progenitor populations, enhancing lymphoid development from the lymphoid progenitor cells. Uh, and Specifically, the loss of uh, HIF-1-2 expression in the progenitors significantly impedes uh, the production of natural killer and B cells from these lymphoid progenitors. So it, it's, it's a strong, I think, study in that it really focuses in, in very laser focus on a specific cell type, a specific compartment within hematopoiesis. It's a Cell Reports article that I think drills down and looks under a rock that no one's turned over to show that hypoxia plays a role specifically in lymphoid differentiation, but I think it also introduces this idea that we may need to reframe our understanding of all these hematopoietic stories, focusing on the differential oxygen levels in the home tissues that these cells preferentially arise and home to. Yeah, hypoxia, it's, uh, I think it's something that we need to take a closer look at, not only for the hematopoietic lineages, but also for, for like iPSCs, for example. The first thing that comes to mind for me when it comes to hypoxia and IPS culture is reprogramming. Hmm. There's studies out there that have shown that the reprogramming process is facilitated be, by a hypoxic environment. And I remember, you know, when I've done re reprogramming in the past, it's actually enhanced the overall number of colonies that I've gotten when I've cultured these cells in a hypoxic mm. environment. Mm. So I think it's, it's not just the hematopoietic lineage. I think we should kind of look at other cell types in the context of hypoxia, because who knows how hypoxia is going to differentially regulate, you know, cell culture of other cell types that are supposed to be cultured in, in low oxygen in the body, you know? Oh, for sure, man. And the, the thing is also, when you just think of early development, that's just inherently hypoxic. You don't have a heartbeat, right? You don't have any blood flow. So all those early decisions, you know, all those perigastrula decisions, the first decisions to set up all those lineages and beyond, 
beyond. You have a kind of dynamic landscape as tissues are being generated and growing, and then you have the vasculature ca catching up with that growth. So it's a very dynamic, the hypoxic landscape, and that all fits in. That all fits in with development. It's been fine-tuned. It has a role. It's important, and we've lost it in our culture. So if we're going to approach these really complex organoids, we need vasculature, but we also need the lack of vasculature in some ways, right? Absolutely. Hypoxia, it's something that, you know, we should definitely take a closer look at. It's important for all sorts of things, reprogramming, IPSCs. And speaking of IPSCs, that's kind of where we're going to go with the, the next paper, which is titled Loss of ZNT8 Function Protects Against Diabetes by Enhanced Insulin Secretion. I really love this paper because to me, this was a, a real translational paper. You're going from a, an observation in the clinic to the bench side, back to the bedside, potentially. It's a, it's a really comprehensive study coming out of the, uh, from Leaf Group's lab over in Finland. First author is Om Prakash Dravedi. And it's focusing on a, initially a clinical phenotype. So apparently there's a group of people in Scandinavia who have a rare loss of function allele in arginine-138 in this SLC30A8 gene, which encodes for a zinc transporter, ZNT8. So as I mentioned, this is you know predominantly found and rare, rarely in these Finnish populations. And the interesting thing is that this particular allele is apparently protective against type 2 diabetes. So what these folks were able to do was to identify relatives of identified uh, carriers for this particular mutation and showed that people who had this mutation actually had better insulin secretion due to an enhanced glucose responsiveness and pro-insulin conversion. And then they basically took that clinical observation and the fact that, you know, these individuals have this genetic mutation and did a ridiculous amount of in vitro and in vivo model system-based analysis on that mutation. So hear me out. They did not only, you know, the clinical confirmation that these individuals have, you know, higher levels of insulin, but also they created iPSCs from these folks. They had primary pancreatic islet isolation. They created mouse models. They created rat models, all with you know these particular mutations showing the similar phenotype, that this particular mutation, arginine 138, is causing an enhanced insulin secretion phenotype. So it's going from an initial clinical observation to an in vitro and in vivo model system. And then ultimately, the goal is to perhaps identify this particular uh, zinc transporter, the ZNT8, as potentially a target for type 2 diabetes. So this is a loss of function mutation, right? So you're, this is a loss of function, premature stop codon frame shift mutation. And so what if you can mimic that with a drug? That's shouldn't be too hard in my opinion, right? So you have a drug that's going to target this, this uh, the zinc transporter, and perhaps it's going to have the same effect. It's going to elevate insulin levels. There's plenty of approaches that we're, we're using these days when it comes to using iPSCs for, uh, for improving, you know, type two diabetes and improving insulin secretion. This might be another way to, to look at things. What if we do a, a genetic or a drug induced knockdown of ZNT8? I know like for example, Doug Melton is his big thing is generating IPS derived pancreatic beta cells so that they can actually secrete insulin on their own. And perhaps you can transplant those into people to who, you know, are are diabetic. So I think there's a few different ways you can approach this, either using like a comprehensive study like this to identify a drug target or maybe just introduce the beta cells themselves into people. What do you think, Daylon? Well, I, like you, I'm impressed with the level of rigor that they took this to. They went Rambo with the rigor. But I'm also, I love this type of story. Uh, I remember we, we covered, I don't know if you were co-host yet, but we talked on the show about a group that was using, they were hacking this phenotype that emerges in few people where uh, fetal hemoglobin is activated and persists in adults. And for patients that had sickle cell, you can activate, the idea was you activate the fetal hemoglobin 
and that is less vulnerable to the phenotype. So by like kind of introducing this this mutation, essentially, um, you get this this protective effect. And then not just last week, I'm listening to NPR and I hear this case about this woman in Tennessee who is having her sickle cell treated by taking out her blood cells, mm -hmm. CRISPR targeting them, putting them back yep. in and she's doing great. She's having no attacks. So like you realize we covered that story however long ago and then I'm hearing about it in the news. And the reason that is, is because the distance to the clinic is much shorter in a situation like this, where you can kind of break the system, so to speak, to provide the protective effect. I'm not saying that this is the correlate of that, but I love stories like this because they start with like an observation, like a, hmm, and then after a crazy amount of rigor, you come up with an approach that might be able to address the disease in a way that like is attainable in the near term. Yeah, I think... I love studies like this because it's it's an example of using nature to our advantage, right? There are so many instances of, you know, genetic mutations which confer protective phenotypes, not only in like a situation like this, like against type two diabetes, but then you have the circumstance of like HIV, for example. You have people who have mutations for CCR five and, you know, they're resistant to, to HIV infection. Or even maybe when it comes to drug toxicity, there are certain people who are resistant to term certain types of drugs or, you know, uh, that sort of thing, which can be harnessed uh, for an advantage. So I think nature is, it's beautiful, right? And you, we, I think there's so much we need to harness from nature when it comes to using these unique genetic mutations to, to an advantageous effect. I think it's, it's a powerful way to, to look at things. Yeah. There's nothing like mother nature. And you know, the, the, the real lesson, uh, was learned in the stem cell field decades ago, uh, regarding that with the hematopoietic st stem cell transplant, uh, bone marrow transplant, you know, you have someone who's diseased, you clear out what's bad and you just put in nature's cell to repopulate the hematopoietic tree. I mean, it's the proven stem cell therapy, the gold standard, uh, and it's important. It's uh, saving a lot of lives, but it could be better. There's a lot of challenges there. Um, the bottom line is that the engraftment, the proliferation, the differentiation, self-renewal, those are all regulated by the niche, the microenvironment. The reason why we're talking about this again is because of our guest, Arun. It's not my interest in hematopoiesis. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, his doubts notwithstanding, I'm going to go on with this story. So this is about lethal radiation, right? In order to clear the bone marrow out, clear those disease cells out, you need to provide these uh, radioablative doses. Uh, and it's been proposed that a major part of the loss of the hematopoietic uh, capacity there is that lethal radiation triggers acute loss of the endothelial cells. And it also causes all these associated effects, vessel dilation, swelling, uh, changes in the permeability. But realistically, our understanding of the effect of radiation chemotherapy on the vascular damage, what's going on there phenotypically, mechanistically during ablation, as well as in regeneration, and what that does for the hematopoietic cells that want to go move in there. We don't really understand that. And it's important because the niche is really critical to getting that repopulation and robust recovery. So let's talk about the ECs. It's really unclear and there's been, it's a moving target. There's always a debate. You go to any of these meetings, people are pulling their air out, yelling at each other about what is the critical niche cell? Is it a stromal cell? Is it a parasite cell? Is it an endothelial cell? And it's probably a combination of all of those, but the, the, it's very unclear whether all the capillary ECs that have been implicated in the importance of the niche, endothelial cells, the capillary endothelium, are equally important. All right. So here comes in this candidate, Apelin. All right. So just to, to set this up, this is a story from Ralph Adams, who's a god in the field of vascular remodeling. He's at the Max Planck in Germany. And his whole thing 
is tip stock sells. His, his major contribution amongst others was this uh, elucidation of the differential activity of tip and stock cells during neoangiogenesis, right? So there's this factor, apelin. It's primarily secreted from a subset of capillary ECs. And in the, in the retinal vasculature, in the growing retinal vasculature that Ralph loves, all his stories, he puts out these retinal vasculature because it's, it's a vascular tree that grows in neonates. It gets developed after birth, so it's a really amenable model. And looking at that, Ralph and his group have seen that apelin expression is really enriched in the tip cells. Those are the cells at the distal end of the vessel sprouts. So it's a very small subset. Um, apelin, it also uh, marks highly proliferative ECs just generally during development. The endothelial cells in developing organs highly express apelin. And then when you get to the adult, adult vasculature and everything's normalized, apelin positive endothelial cells just disappear. So it's been implicated in this developmental process, this angiogenic process, the growth process. Uh, and here, Ralph and his group are implicating it also as a critical factor in the niche during recovery. They use a lot of tools, Ralph's group, they've got it all, uh, including inducible mouse genetics based on this inducible apelin Cree ERT2 mouse line where they can specifically knock out factors in apelin expressing cells. Of course, they use flow cytometry, GATO if you're looking at the blood, RNA sequencing and this advanced imaging. Uh, they do a lot of imaging to, to you know, morphometric um, to study. They use all these tools to study uh, what goes on with these apelin cells in steady state hematopoiesis, also during regeneration after bone marrow transplantation, radioablation. What they found was that there's a critically small subpopulation of apelin cells. We're talking 0.003% of the bone marrow cells. So that's like five cells pretty much. Um, not actually, it's a lot more than that, but it's a very small, vanishingly small percentage. They found that if you genetically ablate these cells, or if you just knock out kit ligand, this critical hematopoietic stem cell factor in those apelin cells, uh, that you get a real defect in hematopoietic regeneration. And they show that these apelin positive endothelial cells also are substantially active immediately after uh, irradiation. So here they're showing, and apelin's no stranger. People talk about apelin, they talk about it even in the niche, but here I think they definitively show that there's a critical functional role uh, for these apelin positive cells in hematopoiesis, both steady state as well as following uh, radioablation and during recovery. So it's, a, it's, I think, big news, cell stem cell article, because anytime you can find that one cell, you find that one target. And if you can amplify that target or you know, give it a little boost, you might be able to uh, provide, you know, a little bit more of a benefit during hematopoietic recovery. Also, you might understand which uh, um, donors and recipients are well matched. So it's, uh, it's, I think, a critical entry into the hematopoietic stem cell niche field, Arun. The vasculature, it's the thing that connects everything, right? My favorite organ, the heart to the brain, everything's connected by the vasculature. It makes me wonder, like outside of just the, the hematopoietic stem cell and progenitor field, what if we could model something like this, you know, like the effect of irradiation or chemotherapy on, on vasculature, like using a, like a 3D printed construct? Like what if we, and may, who knows, maybe this is something we could ask uh, Dr. Zanstra, who's our guest today, right? So what if we... We, what if we could model these effects using a completely artificial system? Like, you know, there's a huge push these days to move away from mouse models. And that's kind of one reason why these like organ chips and 3D printed constructs are becoming so popular is kind of like, you know, people are like, all right, you know, what if we don't want to use so many mouse models for, for a system for, for studying stuff like this. Do you think there's any way that we might be able to kind of model these sort of interactions and these phenotypes outside of an in vivo system? So do you think we can do this totally in vitro? You know, Arun, we're going to have to talk to your people over there, uh, Todd McDevitt at all about whether you can model this stuff in silico. I, as I kind of alluded to in addressing the story, I, I, I'm a lazy person. I think that the, the amount of work that it's going to take to get the computer to design it 
is going to be more work than it's worth when we can just look at the system right now. And I'll tell you, the one thing about the vasculature that I've learned is really tough in the whole modeling environment. As you kind of led to in, in uh, your analysis of that first story is the 3D component. I think it's really difficult for us to even imagine the degree of complexity that's added for the vasculature when you move into that system. And if you look at why Ralph Adams loves the retinal vasculature, it's because you can effectively flatten out that 3D system into a plane and see how these vessels move and branch in 2D. And when you get into the 3D, I think the degree of complexity that you add there, it's like trying to imagine a million years. It's like, yeah, I can, I can see it on paper, but like once I get to living for a thousand years, I realize how long a million must be, you know, not that I'm going to live a thousand years, but that's the hope around. Hey, man, I'm an optimist. Okay. For one, I think you are going to live a thousand years. And for two, I think we're getting pretty good at printing vasculature in 3D. Okay. I mean, we've had, we've talked about a lot of these papers, these like advanced 3D vascularization papers, or this like sacrificial bio ink where you can create vasculature, like pretty accurate vasculature and then like a 3D printed construct. I'm an optimist. I like cool technologies. So I think there's hope. I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to be able to replicate the vasculature, but we'll see. Well, here's to me living a thousand years. How about that? Moving on to our guest today. He's from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Vancouver science scene, then we'd like to invite you to check out scienceinthecity.com. The Science in the City website and newsletter are your source for all life science news, events, and jobs taking place in the greater Vancouver area. Check out Science in the City today at www.scienceinthecity.com or follow them on Twitter at ScienceVanCity. All right, guys, today we have for you Dr. Peter Zanstra. He's the director of the UBC School of Biomedical Engineering and the Michael Smith Laboratory at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Zanstra works on stem cell bioengineering. His lab applies engineering design principles, computational modeling, and fundamental stem cell biology to study the mechanisms that control stem cell fate and to develop technologies for the propagation of stem cells and their derivatives. They focus there on the hematopoietic system, near and dear to my heart, on differentiation of blood cell lineages. They have four main pillars in the work there. It's one, multi-scale simulation of human tissue and organogenesis. Two, synthetic control of cell fate and function. Three, cell niche engineering. And four, cellular therapeutics. Dr. Zanstra, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. A real pleasure being here. Well, the pleasure is ours. Would you start by just giving us a brief overview of the research in your laboratory, please? Sure. Um, my lab is interested fundamentally in how cells make decisions. And we examine those control systems across cellular molecular scale. So at the molecular level, how do uh, different signaling pathways get integrated to guide self-renewal differentiation, but then also how does the environment or the niche interact with that, those cells to pattern tissues and eventually lead to functional tissue development, especially around blood cell emergence. So Dr. Zanstra, uh, kind of on that topic, you had mentioned that your lab is using bioengineering approaches to improve differentiation, in particular with blood lineages, like you talked about. And of course, there's really a huge demand for enhancing the differentiation of hematopoietic and stem and progenitor cells to meet the demands for donor blood and also to address questions related to leukemias. So where are we right now when it actually comes to maintaining these HSPCs and also maintaining their self-renewal? long term yeah i mean this is really a, a, a long-standing challenge and, and, and the one that's kind of interesting when you think about how the field evolved um, it really started with with the earliest definitions of what a stem cell was where people either uh, uh, you know people like jim till and nurse mcculloch transplanted these into the spleens of mice got the properties of those cells tried to define 
um, if they could maintain those properties outside the body by putting those cells on so-called feeder layers, which were different types of stromal cells. Eventually, we learned about what those stromal cells were actually secreting, which were cytokines and growth factors. We tried to replace those uh, feeder layers with cytokines and growth factors. And, and as, as we learned more and more about how cells interact with each other and how those molecular networks interface, we started looking at the small molecules and culture conditions that control the environment really closely. So our lab's work has really started at, at this phase of, of what are the cytokines and growth factors that might be important, but then started thinking about um, how can we control the environment around the cells in a more dynamic way. And, and that was more the kind of chemical engineering, process engineering side of things. Or how could we uh, understand cell communication and feedback, which is which is really how um, that environment is maintained in a dynamic way around cells. Um, so that sort of gives us a little bit of a number of different tools to control uh, self renewal and 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 homeostasis of the cell population. Um, we're, it's still a challenge to this day. You know, we know that we can. We, there's evidence now that we can grow stem cells, a um, uh, few divisions, maybe tenfold uh, outside the body. But to be able to do that in a sustained long-term way, um, as, as happens over our lifetimes, uh, still remains an important challenge. Yeah, another challenge. Well, yeah, there's the keeping them going uh, ex vivo. Right. But one of the most sought after uh, targets for embryonic stem cell induced pluripotent stem cell biologists is this generation of a functional hematopoietic stem cell, bona fide, definitive hematopoietic stem cell. Many have tried, uh, including myself, and failed. Or some have succeeded to varying degrees, but we're still not even close, I, I would say. Uh, why do you think the goal has been so difficult to reach? And, and if we are, just for our audience out there, if we are able to get these cells from pluripotent and stem cells. Why is that such a big deal? What are some of the, the more impressive applications of that cell that would change the therapeutic landscape? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. We know, we know a fair amount about where these cells come from during development, um, different uh, niches, you know, the AGM, the, uh, maybe the placenta, a few other places. But we don't know much about what the combination of local uh, and cell intrinsic molecular signals are that definitively leads to their emergence. And, um, and we don't know certainly how to stabilize them once they emerge. And I think those two problems are really interesting because it could be that we're actually generating cells and we're not rescue them after they're generating, or that we're just not generating always the, the right cell type. Now, there's all kinds of markers which we're starting to use to capture this. And one of the exciting developments over the last little while is, is our ability to capture cells which maintain uh, pretty robust developmental potential into lymphoid and myeloid lineages outside the body. This, this doesn't mean they're the, you know, the bona fide stem cells that you're talking about that are transplantable, but it does mean we can start thinking about generating really interesting cell populations from these cells that could be therapeutically useful. Why is this so exciting? Because you can use PSC or pluripotent stem cells as the platform for this cell population. And that means you can start thinking about editing in the PSC state for applications to blood stem cells. You can start thinking about really large-scale manufacturing. You know, we can put these PSCs into bioreactors at, at, at many, many uh, uh, at very large scale cultures, tens of liters, for example. Um, and, and this means that much of the cost and complexity of these therapeutics can really be uh, start to be approached. Hmm. So definitely while the end goal is the generation of these mature cell types from iPSCs and iPSC derivatives, the means to that end is still reprogramming, right? We still have to make iPSCs 
in a good enough way where we can expand them and they can be, you know, functionally being able to be, uh, they can differentiate well enough to make whatever cell types you're interested in. So we actually covered a paper last episode from the Scholar Lab where they actually dropped OCT4 from the Yamanaka reprogramming recipe and showed actually it had more faithful differentiation potential. And in fact, you actually had a recent paper, a really cool paper that came out in Science a few months ago that actually goes really deep into the IPC reprogramming process and shows that there's actually some elite clones of cells that can outcompete others during that process. And I was thinking that, you know, I thought all cells in a population were equally susceptible to being reprogrammed. So this kind of blew my mind. So do you mind uh, taking us through that paper in a little bit more in depth? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I actually, I just saw uh, Hans Schiller a couple of weeks ago and I saw that work and uh, and that, uh, that story, it's, it's really interesting. And I think, I think points to something that is also relevant to the question you asked around, around our recent paper that looks at competition during reprogramming. And, and, and what, what we showed in that paper was that although, as you said, all cells are, have the potential to, to reprogram, um, if you, and they show this potential over an extended period of time if they're put as individual cells in individual wells, um, you put them together as a population, um, then there starts to be interesting competition between these cells that lead to certain clones that have advantages. And the question then becomes, what, what gives these clones advantages? Uh, in, the, in the story we looked at, um, we, we found that these uh, neural crest-like cells, which already expressed some of the factors such as SOX2, uh, SOX um, had a specific advantage. But, um, but I think this concept of competition during reprogramming really is, is a generalizable concept in that we know there's heterogeneity in almost all the cell types we look at. And this heterogeneity leads to condition-specific advantages and disadvantages. And those uh, ultimately lead to certain cell types having a uh, an advantage, a competitive advantage in this case, during the processes we take them through. So, um, although, you know, in the paper we showed specifically the example of a murine embryonic fibroblast reprogramming, um, I know that if we look along heterogeneous blood cell reprogramming or other types of tissues, we'll also see competitive advantages from subpopulations of those cells. And that's important because it means during, you know, population-based reprogramming, we are selecting for certain properties. Um, that ultimately lead to a reduction in clonal diversity amongst those cell populations. So that being the case, do you think, you know, Arun and I talked about it when we were talking about the Scholler paper. It's been over a decade. We're still learning a lot. Um, you know, there's heterogeneity in any cellular population, including the hematopoietic stem cells that are used widely in therapy. So, I mean, that alone isn't a deal breaker. But given how much we're still learning about these and other cell types that we're considering transplanting, how do you think that relates to whether or not we're ready for prime time with this, these therapies? I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm not... I don't think that those two ideas actually link to each other in a way that I'm concerned. Um, certainly, um, we want to be able to uh, reprogram and generate IPS cell populations that are well characterized. Uh, cell competition might allow us to uh, do that in an efficient way across population by reducing the reliance on clone picking in some cases. But, um, but you know, there are a number of assays and uh, uh, benchmarks that are used to determine the quality of iPS cells that so far look like um, they are able to accurately uh, measure their developmental potential as well as uh, uh, their safety in certain situations. Um, I, think, I think where it's interesting is um, how we extend, how we can think about competition actually as an advantage um, in in cell therapeutics, we know now that you know in some instances we have to transplant lots of cells. Um, perhaps if we could control competition between cell populations, we could reduce the number of, of cells that needed to be transplanted, allow those cells to to reach new homeostatic states uh, through toggle switches that control this or other things. Um, and so I think I think it's just another interesting lens that we can use to. Um, just 
start to engineer the types of cell therapy outputs we're after. Yeah, part of that is really just control, right? And, and monitoring the cell population. And a lot of that also is just choosing the, the, the cell type that you start with. No, I mean, I don't think people talk about this enough that, you know, particularly in the blood field, also the skin, which is constantly uh, exposed to UV, but in the blood, it's emerging that there's all this kind of clonality that emerges over the course of, of the adult lifespan. Given the idea that you're going to then transplant these pluripotent cell derivatives into a progenitor that then is going to cycle many more times um, in their therapeutic lifespan, what's your uh, position on what the best cell type, or is it relevant? Do we have to take a cell type like cord blood or something that's really naive, genomically speaking? Yeah, I know. I see where you're going with that. I mean, you know, your the hypothesis is, is that if you take cells that um, have already obtained, you know, various pre-genetic, you know, pre-lesions, uh, genetic lesions of some type, and then you reprogram, and if these are not epigenic and not reset, but are carried through to the, the IPS population, is there additional... Um, uh, risk that's associated with that. I think, I think, as I said, as I said, again, I think, I think we're, we're getting, uh, fairly comfortable with analysis of those clones as they're made. Uh, but, um, I do think, um, that, you know, choosing the right input cell population so that the reprogramming process is as efficient as, as, as it can be, um, and thereby reducing the introduction of new uh, genetic aberrations during reprogramming will, will, will you know, is a, is a worthwhile goal. Um, you know, is, is our core blood, blood stem cells the best way to go? Are other cell types the best way to go? You know, is there a memory from T cells? Um, there's a lot of really interesting research going on in that area. I don't think we know definitively what the best answer is yet. So when we think about the downstream applications for some of these mature cell types, some of these mature um, stem cell and iPS-derived cell types, that's kind of the question, right? That's the ele- that's the elephant in the room, maturity. For like, I'm a heart guy, for example, and there have been a number of approaches recently to actually enhance the maturity of iPS-derived cardiomyocytes. For example, there's a, a really phenomenal pacing study done by Gordana Vonyak Novakovic's group at Columbia. So how far do you think we need to go? when it actually comes to using tissue engineering applications for for maturing stem cell derived uh, derivatives, you know, IPS derivatives. And do you think maturation is still kind of a major hurdle when it comes to using these cells for transplantation purposes? Yeah. And again, this in, in the blood forming system, you know, how does maturation really manifest itself? Um, certainly, you know, NK cells, T cells, um, blood stem cells, other cell types have many of the properties we may be after therapeutically. Um, are they fully mature counterparts to the original cells? Uh, there's probably differences we could identify. In the heart system, those differences end up being quite important around the a function we're looking for, i.e. the integration with the tissue, the electrical signal uh, conduction, the rates of of force contraction. And I think that's why there's been a great um, focus on it in in, in the cardiac system. Um, And it's it's a good opportunity, you know, as as Gordana has shown, there are many parameters that are important through this maturation process. you know, what are the parameters that are going to allow us to to take those same, um, uh, what are the analogous parameters of the blood forming system for maturation? Um, you know, we think that there are chemical signals that, that we need to provide to the cells to, to mature them in that way. Um, but we'll see. Does that, is that relevant for like disease modeling or is it moot? You just take, you know, adult stem cells to do any kind of disease risk or modeling or would pluripotent stem cell derived hematopoietic cells be useful for disease modeling in your, in your mind? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the way we've been thinking about it recently, because we've been starting to explore this idea about disease modeling. Um, and, and one of my observations is that, 
um, in, in many of the disease models that are out there, there is a, um, the immune system is not uh, appropriately uh, included in the observations around those disease models. And, and whether it's cardiac disease modeling or disease modeling in neurodegeneration systems or other things, we know that in the, um, you know, in vivo, in, in the humans, in the disease, immune activation um, uh, um, plays a big role in both the acceleration and the manifestation of many of these conditions. And so, so what we've been thinking of is how might we start to introduce um, into these disease models immune system components to ask, does this make uh, those models, give higher fidelity to those models? Hmm. Um, you know, that's really a work in progress right now. Hmm. So, uh, as a hematologist, you of course understand and appreciate the primacy of the, ni- the niche in uh, governing stem cell self renewal as well as differentiation. But you know, the wrinkle is the complexity of the niche is really difficult to synthesize or simulate. Um, you've done a lot with micro pat- patterning to elicit order from these differentiating cultures, and it seems like maybe. Organoids are also providing a means of, of simulating the niche wholesale. Uh, do you think that organoids could be an answer for the ever dynamic and elusive hemangiogenic niche? Are you looking into that? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about that potential. I don't think anyone's really cracked that yet, but, you know, just to back up, um, there's a couple of couple of things that we've done that point in the direction you're showing. One, um, we've, we've really been quite excited about um, untangling the cell communication network, the language in which hematopoiesis uses to communicate internally, both in terms of feedback between cell types and autocrine loops within stem cells. And, and given that foundation, we now know that the translation of that language is very different when the cell is in an environment of other cell types versus uh, on its own in a dish. And so we're, we're excited about using some of these technologies um, such as micro patterning. We've, we've, we've put, for example, human, uh, uh, you know, atrial endothelial cells on patterns, looked at how blood cells pop off these at different locations and different times. Um, we think that starting to model aspects of the hemogenic niche, um, whether or not we can do that entirely in 2D or whether we need to move into these beautiful, you know, 3D gastroloid conditions where, where we actually simulate um, the, uh, the blood-forming niche de novo. Um, uh, we've seen some really nice studies from uh, Alfonso Martinez-Arias in Cambridge, around those uh, uh, mouse gastroloid systems. Uh, a number of groups are looking at that around in human systems as well. Um, I think if we could learn and measure what the signals are around the cells that emerge in these organoids, um, uh, we'll learn a lot. Um, from our perspective, though, those systems are still uh, in need of further, um, you know, quote, unquote, engineering. They're not very robust. Um, they're quite variable in timing and size. And we think that um, there's really interesting opportunities to use some of this fabrication uh, niche engineering aspects to not only um, control patterning in 2D, as we've done, but also to do that in 3D by providing uh, sources of signals, uh, uh, symmetry-breaking events, uh, other, other types of things which can really make these uh, more robust, and certainly people like Matthias Lutoff and others have already have already started to advance really neat things in the area. So, speaking of maturing organoids and maturing iPSC-derived organoids, there's, as you might know, there's uh, there's been some recent work in the neuroscience field that's actually driven organoids and brain organoids to a relatively more mature state. And I think, unfortunately, some folks have been referring to uh, these advanced brain organoids as mini-brains, which, of course, is, I think, terrible 
PR. What's your what's your take on that? And do you think do you think there are certain ethical concerns, ethical considerations that we have to you know to take into consideration when we generate mature organoid tissues for downstream purposes? Yeah, um, I mean certainly in the developmental organoids um, where our goal is to understand stages of development that are normally inaccessible. Um, I think we're not at the stage yet where we need to be uh, worried about some of the technologies that are emerging, but one could imagine that we would approach those stages quite quickly. And so understanding as a community um, what we feel is acceptable, how that relates to current uh, paradigms in the field, like the you know Warnock fourteen day rule, like other aspects of of especially when we're talking about early human development, um, is is really uh, important for scientists to be part of that discussion. Um, and and uh, um, you know we're seeing very interesting uh, um, uh, things happen also in the area of chimeras. Um, where people are combining uh, early embryonic material from different species uh, and asking, do those chimeras uh, develop uh, as uh, an integrated circuit of two different cell types? Um, those are also experiments that one needs to think about. You know, what is the goal of those experiments? What are we learning from those experiments? Are there better ways we can learn things? Um, and I think I think those, those discussions are really just starting. Um, but um, and you know there is no easy answer to this. We certainly don't want to uh, uh, take uh, opportunities away from making really important discoveries that will teach us about biology or have an important health impact. But we do want to at least approach these problems with our eyes open. All right, Dr. Zanstra, I want to talk about Canada. For a minute, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seems like Canada's got tremendous gravity, and not just because of its mass. I'm talking scientific gravity for the researchers we've spoken to. Many of them, they've done some element of their training there, and ultimately, they pretty much all go back long term after a stint in U.S., Europe, Asia, wherever. They come back to Canada. What do you love about research in Canada? Is it the culture? Is it your institute? What draws all these people back to Canada? Yeah, no, good question. You should come for a visit. I'll show you. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I guess I guess there's a, a couple of different things, and, and uh, you know, what's important is to recognize is I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of all scientific Canadians. Um, but for me, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, we have this interesting sweet spot of the size of our community, the big community. It's a big enough community that we have a lot of good things going on in many different areas, but it's not so big that we have hundred people of, of everything, doing everything at the same time, which means that, um, that there's, there's, there's good reason for us to interact with each other. And, and those interactions are productive because there's excellent people in most areas in all areas. Um, and so, so I think that leads to this formation of this community. Um, the other thing, and I'm, I'm saying this just having come back from our uh, our national stem cell meeting, the Till and McCulloch uh, meetings, um, and and we have these kind of um, programs that allow uh, groups of communities uh, working in common areas across disciplines to come together. So you know, within the stem cell network, there are engineers, there's clinicians, there's ethicists, there's legal scholars patient groups. Um, and, and so they're not so much discipline specific as topic specific. And I think that leads to a lot of nice interactions in the building of a really robust community industry is there as well. Um, it, it, it's very exciting in that manner. So you talk about having a strong scientific community in Canada, and of course, a big part of that community are, are students, right? So the the trainees, and I noticed that you're a big advocate of educational outreach, especially when it comes to 
bioengineering and stem cell biology. You're the founding director of the, the School of Biomedical Engineering at UBC, and it seems like you've always had students in your lab. So what do you think is the most rewarding thing, like in your opinion, about mentoring students, mentoring kids who are excited about bioengineering and, and stem cell biology? And, and what's the best way to get students excited about these hot new fields? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I I think you hit the nail on the head, so I'll repeat what you said. But I think what I enjoy about working with students is the the energy, enthusiasm, and creativity that they bring the problem. Um, and and one of the things that has always been true in my lab is is we have students from many different backgrounds. We have students that are chemical engineers. We have students that are molecular biologists. Students that are physicists. Um, uh, for example, students that are chemists. And and if we bring these people together, um, everyone's always learning from each other. Um, the questions we ask are are increasing, uh, given increasing value from having many different perspectives and a diversity of ideas. Um, and, uh, and that's really exciting. Um, it creates an environment that I think uh, is quite stimulating. The other thing is... Um, you know, these students are really uh, the people who will move forward and take the questions we're asking today uh, into new therapeutics, ask new questions of themselves. Um, and I think I think the role that, that we can all play um, in that is is really a, a privilege in some ways to be able to to to, to work with uh, these individuals. And finally, I have, to, I, have to, I have to give a plug for bioengineering and biomedical engineering. Um, you know, we, we, we've, we've long ago entered this era where biology is really driven by technology and quantification. Um, and who better to think about technology and quantification than engineers? And if you enable these engineers with a really deep fundamental understanding in biology, um, um, I just think it's a neat combination of two different things that will have a huge impact. Yeah, it's no coincidence. I'm sure that you're a real advocate for educational outreach because I learned when I had kids that they uh, understand technology a lot better than I do. So it's a perfect lab where everyone has something to learn. Everybody also has something to teach and uh, it's a delicate balance, but you're pulling it off now to a couple of uh, peripheral questions, not fully science related, but uh, we know scientists, all you guys think about is science. So they're going to be peripheral, not entirely science, but please not, uh, not too little science either. It's a science podcast. First one is, uh, what non-science book are you, we are closely related to science, but not entirely science book are you reading or have you read that is awesome and you'd recommend? Yeah. So it's, 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 uh, it's not, uh, really related to science, although you know everything is really related to science. <laughs> uh, but uh, but actually, the book I'm reading right now that's really got my imagination is actually the autobiography of Muhammad Ali. And um, and the reason I picked it up was um, you know when Maya Angelou died, uh, it was one of the books that she recommended. She's always been a writer I've been really really loved, um, and and I like it because. You know, first of all, it has sports in it, and that, that everyone loves a good sports story. But it also has, you know, it takes us through this time in history um, when so much was going on in the U.S. and so many different things were interacting, and it does so from a perspective that that you know I didn't know that much about. So it's a great read. I highly recommend. So, following up on that one, how about your scientific heroes? Who has inspired you? over the days as, uh, over your time as a being scientist? Yeah. So, so I, I, I've been, I've been lucky to have an incredible series of mentors throughout my career. And, and, you know, it's always dangerous mentioning people because you always forget people. Um, but from my PhD mentors, uh, Connie Eves and Jamie Perret to my postdoctoral mentor, Doug Laufenberger. Um, and then more recently, um, uh, you know, people like Mike Sefton and Janet Rassant and, and, and many others have, have, have really had a big influence in my life, mostly by leading by example. The, the types of mentors I really like uh, are ones that are able to demonstrate uh, through their actions um, how to really 
uh, be a good scientific citizen, how to uh, do excellent science, um, but also the responsibility that comes with that. Um, I, I, I would I would be remiss to say that I also um, one of the things that um, that was really neat in Toronto was I was able to meet Jim Till, and Jim Till, of course, comes from the famous Till McCulloch uh, pair that um, first identified the the core properties of, of blood stem cells through their assays. Um, and uh, and and what I like about um, Jim and, and and Ernest McCulloch is that they represent this um, combination of of you know physics, really biophysics. Uh, Jim Till was a radiation biologist in hematology, and and this this takes us right back to the very foundation of, of the blood forming system, where actually mathematical modeling and assays and technology were important biology. So, you know, although that was more than 60 years ago, uh, you can see that I'm still still really using the same approaches in, in the work we're doing. Yes, the long history of biology and engineering. Uh, thanks, Peter, for sharing uh, some of that with us and your insights. This has been a really great chat. And uh, thanks for all the work you do. This has uh, been a great interview and we've learned a lot. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We had a great show today with Dr. Peter Zanstra talking about the niche, talking about blood, all my favorite stuff. Arun, I think this was a hit. What do you think? I think so. Not only all that, we're talking about artificial intelligence, something totally new, totally different. So it's always cool to talk about exciting new technologies, and there's a million of them coming out these days in the field of stem cell biology. So stay tuned. <laughs>